From weekend warriors to an integral part of the British Army, how the government plans to change the TA. Also this week, four more years for Barack Obama. We are an American family and we rise or fall together as one nation and as one people. But what does it mean for the rest of the world? Plus, we look at Britain's new defence partnership with the UAE. I'm Paul Osborne in this week for Kate Chabot. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has set out plans for a radical change in the role of army reservists. The government plans to double the size of the Territorial Army to 30,000 and change the name from the TA to the Army Reserves. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst joins us now down the line from Westminster. Uh, James, run through some of these main changes for us. Well, that name change you mentioned is meant to sort of overarchingly reflect what I think Philip Hammond wants to become a more professional and, most importantly, more deployable force. So, for the reservists themselves, the deal they're putting forward is... You do more training, up from 35 days a year to 40 days a year, including a 16-day exercise. You commit to being more deployable. You don't just do this as some people see some reservists doing it as a hobby. It is actually to take part in, you know, critical tasks for the nation. In return, you get regular army standard training. You will get more notice of any deployments you make and they will commit to, barring national emergencies, give you just one six-month deployment every five years. In terms of businesses who they need to actually support them on this, they are suggesting perhaps a kite mark to show those businesses that are most supportive of the reserve forces. They're looking at whether or not they put forward any financial support for businesses for the disruption, but if they do, it's only going to be for the smallest businesses. In return, they say, what you you get is better trained and committed people and the, the defense secretary outlined some of his thinking to me well there's a broad uh, package here and it's got lots of elements to it first of all um, i think the kind of reservists that we really want will be excited by the fact that we're setting a bigger challenge for them we're asking them to do a bit more training we're asking them to commit to acquiring skills we're asking them to be available for deployment we're making this uh, a much Uh, bigger challenge. We're fully integrating them with the regular forces. We've said uh, we we will look at the terms and conditions of service. That work is going on now and by the time this consultation is completed uh, we will have a package of terms and conditions ready to announce. People will look at this and go with employers who you rely on. Where's the carrot in terms of perhaps financial support and where's the stick in terms of setting rules that they can't pick on people in the reserves? Well, I think the carrot comes in three forms. First of all, many employers, especially larger um, employers, are very keen to show their commitment to the reserves. We're here today uh, at BT in London, uh, a very large employer of reservists and indeed of ex-regular service people, a company that wants to show its commitment to uh, our reserve forces. Um, There are also many employers that understand the mutual benefit of employing reservists, the value they get from the training and skills that reservists develop uh, in reserve service. And we've not shut our minds to the possibility of financial incentives, additional financial incentives, particularly for smaller employers. That's one of the things we're asking about in the consultation paper today. The regular armoury is already shrinking. Some senior levels in the armed forces are privately very concerned you're going to be able to get enough reservists. Is there a plan B? 
I'm very confident that we will be able to deliver the 30,000 strong uh, trained army reserve that is our target. It's a small number by comparison uh, to where the territorial army was just 20 years ago. We had over 70,000 uh, trained territorial army soldiers uh, in 1990. It's a much smaller proportion uh, than many of our main allies uh, routinely uh, have available today. It's something we can do with employers and reservists together, and it's something that I'm determined to deliver. And a change of name on the cards to the Army Reserve. Why change that name after more than 100 years? Because the image is important as well, and I want to signal very clearly that the defence of territory uh, implied by the name Territorial Army uh, is no longer the principal role. This is a fully integrated part of the regular army. Battalions of reserves paired with battalions of regulars doing the same job alongside them, deploying on exercises, on training and on operations together. So it's a changed function and we'll reflect that in a changed name. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has also outlined these proposals to Parliament. They are proposals at this stage to be discussed. There'll be a, a more detailed white paper sometime in the new year. James, uh, do, do stay with us. Uh, also here in the studio is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Nice to see you again, Christopher. Now, you have some experience in this this particular issue that the defence secretary was talking about there, that if you're going to dramatically expand the role of the reservists, you've got to get the employers on side. Yeah, I was sitting on thing called the, uh, what's called the um, National Employers Liaison Committee, and it was the it was the committee that liaised between the military and the employer. And it was at a time when they'd got over this idea that, you know, you send a guy away on a weekend exercise on Friday and you've got a better manager on the Monday. What they hadn't been able to resolve is what you do with a guy who's away for six months because he comes up with good notice now, much better notice than used to be, not just Queen's Order 2, let's all get out. And they say to him, right, you're going off, let's say, your battalion that you're attached to or part of you're going to deploy, let's say, to Afghanistan. And so that could be nine months, could even be more, training to returning. And then the other part of it came back, uh, well, how does this interrupt his career? Now, you could say, well, you get somebody else in to just do the job. It's rather like maternity leave or, or, or something like this. But no, this is an interruption of the career, and they want to know whether people at a time when jobs are difficult to get will get there. Now, 70,000 uh, TA, for example, in the 1990s, look what the 1990s were, totally different economic climate. The final point which we struggled with, and that is a man comes back, let us say again from Afghanistan, he's gone through certain stresses with his guys in the battalion, etc. And he comes back and more or less he then goes home. He doesn't get through work through those sort of stresses back with his regiment, back with his battalion. And that's a very, very important part of this. And there isn't the, if you like, the aftercare which soldiers would have automatically in a regular battalion. Now it doesn't stop it working but it's something which, and I was hearing last night a general talking about this, and he said it's something which the Army understands, the TA understands in particular, because the other two services are not so involved. He said, but the MOD hasn't yet come to grips with it, and there's no sign that they know how to address it. Now, now James, you, when, you, when you spoke to the Defence Secretary, he talks about wanting a, a new deal with reservists, and there is a lot of talk about how to get the employers on site. What about that point of Christopher? What, what, what support will they get for, in the same way that a regular soldier would get that kind of support after deployment? The Defence Secretary, uh, in talking this morning, uh, w was asked about this and was keen to stress that he wants 
reservists to be treated exactly the same way as regulars in all areas. And one of the important things for him is that they have access to the the same specialist mental health services, that there is some kind of decompression built in. And as Christopher mentioned there, although we're talking about maybe one six-month deployment in five years, actually that that could stretch to a year of mobilisation in terms of both pre-deployment training and they did, you know, they did mention in this as well a, a kind of a decompression period afterwards. I think the other big question here and the, the, the question, big questions that, that Labour raised is you know, are people's jobs going to be protected? Um, should there be, and Labour says there should be, legislation to stop discrimination in work against reservists? All the government co- has committed to so far is to say if there is evidence that there is a serious problem of discrimination, they won't hesitate to introduce that legislation. But they're not talking like people who particularly want to introduce that legislation at the moment. They don't like red tape for businesses. Okay, well, as you say, it's out for consultation, so it's something I imagine we'll come back to quite a bit uh, over the next few weeks. James Hurst of Westminster, thanks very much. Still to come this week, David Cameron's been selling British defence kit in the Gulf. And can social media encourage a revolution in Cuba? Election night 2012. We are projecting the battleground state of Ohio for President Barack Obama, which means... You are looking at the President of the United States. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or young or old or rich or poor, able, disabled, gay or straight. You can make it here in America. I so wish that I had been able to fulfill your hopes to lead the country in a different direction. But the nation chose another leader. And so Ann and I join with you to earnestly pray for him and for this great nation. Thank you, and God bless America. You guys are the best. Thank you so much. A reminder there of the celebrations and commiserations in the United States where Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney in the U.S. presidential election. Well, let's uh, have a look back at the results and what it means, not just for America, but for the rest of the world. Joining me from Washington, D.C., is Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Simon, um, this time last week we were told it was neck and neck in the polls. In the end, it looked a bit more convincing than that for Obama. Were you surprised by the result? Um, I'm a little surprised by the result, but it really depends which prism you're looking at it through, Paul. If you look at it through the prism of the Electoral College, then Barack Obama romped to victory, winning uh, 303 uh, Electoral College uh, seats, votes. He only needed 270 to win. But if you look at it through the prism of the popular vote, it was uh, closer than that, about 2.5 million votes separating uh, Barack Obama uh, from Mitt Romney. And so I think, once again, one can conclude at the end of a bitterly contested uh, electoral period here that this country remains essentially split down the middle with roughly 51% of the people, if you like, uh, hewing to a uh, Democratic candidate in this election and uh, 49% hewing to a Republican. Now, as you say, given how close the popular vote was, the fact that uh, Barack Obama managed this what looks on the surface very convincing Electoral College victory would presumably be a testament to what a good campaign he fought by targeting exactly the votes and the places that he needed. I think a testament to the campaign that he fought and perhaps even more a testament to the ground organisation that the Democrats built and I think we really now have a sense of how damaging that bruising Republican primary contest was earlier this year during all those months when Mitt Romney was slogging around the country and the Republicans seemed to be flirting with any candidate 
candidate other than Mitt Romney uh, to be their standard bearer in the presidential election. First of all, the Republicans were communicating to the wider world that they themselves were not exactly enthused about Mr Romney. And secondly, the Democrats were using that time to build a network of campaign offices in all the crucial battleground states, recruit volunteers, make plans to get the vote out on November the 6th. And that's what really paid off for them. So Obama has a couple of months now before his inauguration and he's already got this big domestic crisis about this financial cliff edge that everyone's talking about if he can't come to a deal with Congress. Does it give him any time to concentrate on some of the big international issues like, say, Afghanistan and then that approaching deadline for withdrawal? Well, you know, you you can't actually divide this issue of the fiscal cliff from foreign policy, particularly as far as the US military is concerned, because that deadline uh, for trying to head off the uh, tax rises and spending cuts that will kick in at the end of the year if he doesn't reach some sort of an arrangement with uh, Congress uh, also has a direct impact on the US military. There's this process of sequestration, a $1.2 trillion cut in the budget for the Pentagon that will kick in unless a deal is reached. Now he comes back to Washington, he's back in the White House uh, today, facing a very similar disposition of forces up on Capitol Hill that he faced before the election. The Democrats control the U.S. Senate, albeit with a slightly padded majority. The Republicans control the House of Representatives, not just any old Republicans, of course, but in growing numbers, uh, supporters of the Tea Party from the right uh, of the Republican Party. And while their leaders are, for the moment, talking the language of compromise and saying, President Obama, we want to be led, we're ready to work with you, uh, it's far from clear whether in a month or six weeks or two months' time that mood of compromise and comity will still exist, which raises big questions about whether an agreement's going to be reached to head off these cuts that would have a devastating impact domestically on the U.S. economy, but also a sizable impact on the U.S. military. Well, Simon, stay with us. Uh, Christopher, let me, let me turn to you o- on that question. I mean, it's often said that U.S. elections turn on domestic policy rather than on foreign affairs. Um, given the problems that, that Barack Obama has to immediately deal with, do you think he is going to be able in the second term to turn more attention to other parts of the world? Um, I've counted 27 different countries that actually had something riding on this election. They were deeply interested. You've got to remember, uh, in during Obama's uh, first presidency, uh, he dealt or he played the cards that Bush had left him. He didn't deal in any other sort of pack. He didn't change anything. He went along and managed whatever he was committed to, including uh, certain changes such as the withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. The world has got on without American foreign policy in a large extent during that four years. For example, American foreign policy, although it, it, it had to catch up with the Hour of Spring, it didn't start the Hour of Spring, it didn't even support it at first. It was a revolution and the Americans don't like revolutions, etc. I mean, they had, they had their own one, which was another story. And so I don't think he's got any problems at all because as long as he gets the domestic thing right, and as, uh, uh, as Simon says, you know, they are linked together. He, for example, is going to reduce the defence budget, whereas Romney would have increased it by $2 trillion, which is more than the Pentagon actually wanted. So he's got no great problems in terms of foreign policy. It's who climbs on with him. There's only two issues. Syria, do I get involved? Answer at the moment, no. Uh, what to do about uh, Iran? Uh, answer, 
go and see Mr. Netanyahu, who he doesn't get on with at the moment, and Israel's got far more influence on what America might be not necessarily forced to do, but forced not to do, than any other country in the world. Well, let's bring uh, in uh, Michael Stathis, who's Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Southern Utah. Uh, Professor Stathis, thank you very much for your time today. Were you surprised by uh, President Obama's re-election? I was relieved. Um, well, relief I, isn't necessarily surprise. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that the deep down inside there was a quiet confidence uh, that uh, that he would win. Um, but uh, the way it uh, turned out uh, was very dramatic. It, uh, it was anticlimactic. There was a moment of suspense. Uh, it was elongated for about an hour. And then suddenly, within moments, the election was over. And I think that uh, uh, here there was rejoicing. I think worldwide, though, there was something of a sigh of relief, wasn't there? Well, certainly in, in other countries. The, the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. said last night, the last survey he showed, uh, saw that about 90% of people in the U.K. would have, would have gone for, for President Obama. Let, let's, well, I've got all three of you gentlemen here. Let's have a little think about how this is going down um, around the world in, in some, of, some of the most important places. Christopher's already mentioned the issues with Iran and with Syria. What, what about Pakistan? How will Pakistan be responding to this election? Simon Marks. Well, I think for the Pakistanis, uh, this is presumably an ongoing worry. I mean, I think perhaps the two biggest losers internationally as a result of this election uh, are Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, who backed the wrong horse, close friend of Mitt Romney, welcomed him, of course, to Israel and made it very clear that while he didn't uh, publicly voice support for the Republican candidate, was throwing his diplomatic weight behind the Republican campaign. So uh, I think Barack Obama will feel confident when he next gets on the phone with Benjamin Netanyahu that he's very much in the driving seat of what has been an extremely fractious relationship. Bad news, too, though, for the Pakistanis, who of course have had very grave difficulties in their relationship with the Obama administration. Uh, the flip side to that, though, is that uh, from an American uh, policy-making perspective, the problems in Pakistan run so deep and so profound uh, that I don't think it necessarily would have been much better had Mitt Romney been in the White House. It's not as though there was a good outcome of all of this for the Pakistani government or a bad one, uh, but certainly you can expect to see continued use of drone air strikes in uh, targeted assassinations, an issue that really nobody discussed during this election campaign, although it concerns civil libertarians uh, at a high level, uh, that policy is going to continue President Obama on track to withdraw from Afghanistan, but will want to uh, continue trying to uh, maintain uh, some sort of grip over the threat of militancy along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, and that's only going to further uh, irritate, irritate the government in Islamabad. Uh, Michael Stathis, the, the Chinese uh, having their uh, leadership summit this week in, in, in Beijing. How is this going to go down in China? Well, uh, early reports uh, seem to indicate that, uh, as I suggested, that there was something of a, a sigh of relief in China. But China right now is kind of an unknown. Uh, they're going through their own political change, and it's not quite clear uh, how that's going to turn out. I don't expect... Uh, a major change in uh, in relations between these two countries, but there is going to be some change. The new government in China, the re-election of Obama, may allow for a chance of something of a uh, uh, a new beginning uh, and um, uh, a lessening of some tensions that have been there for the last little while. But it's, uh, I, I, I think it's hopeful. I really do. Overall, uh, when uh, they announced that Obama had won Ohio, 
in many areas of foreign policy, aside from Pakistan, aside from uh, Netanyahu, it was almost as if a reset button had been pushed. Um, and I think Chris was right on the money that um, I think that now, uh, with re-election in the past, Obama is going to be able to start uh, focusing on some policies that will be, I think, clearly his policies as opposed to reacting to things in the past. Uh, well, Michael Stathis, thank you very much for your time today, and also Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington, D.C. Uh, now, Christopher, uh, we often think about how is this going down in Pakistan, China, Russia, this kind of thing. You, you've, you've got a, a more comprehensive list of countries that you think it really matters. Yeah, I mean, let's take uh, go back to China just very briefly. It's the 18th Party Congress you were talking about. It opens today. No question of electing a president in that country. They have a natural suspicion. There are two things. China... I think the bilateral relations between Russia and China, very, very good. The trilateral relations, in other words, what China gets and America gets, for example, with relations with Japan, over Syria, with questions of the United Nations, that's going to get worse. Russia, uh, cautious, because... Obama is going ahead with the missile defense program in Europe. Russians don't want that. That's going to come up at the next summit, which is in a couple of months' time. Uh, Iran, I don't think there's any change there. Israel, we're talking about uh, Netanyahu. He's got his general election the day after the inaugural in Washington in January. He's on a knife edge as well. Can he actually force the Americans to join in any action? And that's what he wants to know. The Egyptians, Mohammed Mosti who is the leader uh, in, uh, in, in, in Egypt, he's cautious. Uh, he says, I hope we will strengthen relations. In other words, relations ain't that good. Uh, Syria, the rebels are saying, come on, let's go. You've got your man in there now. He can take all the decisions he likes. You know, he's, he, he owns the store. So why can't he support us now? Uh, Christopher, one, one last one. We, we were talking about your list before, and, and the one that, that made me pause, East Australia is on your list of vital nations. Australia and Argentina. Argentina wants American support now to, uh, in its case against the Falklands, against British occupation of the Falklands. Americans will give it. And that's something which nobody had expected. I'll give it in the United Nations. They'll give it also organization of uh, American states uh, meeting. The other one, Australia, in two, three months' time now, there's going to be a second tranche agreement, which the Australians were hoping for. Obama can now do it, and that is for an enlargement of an American base in the Northern Territories. It's this part of it, you know, it's this great switch to the emphasis being on the Pacific. And the most important one, of course, is the United Kingdom. Uh, we can't do much without the United States uh, militarily. And also, the F-35, Trident technology, political and military ideas, intelligence gathering, it's all wrapped up. In other words, the Americans voted for our president. Nice of them to do so. Well, while the world was focused on events in the United States, David Cameron was in the Middle East in the role of salesman. The Prime Minister led a delegation to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, where he's hoping to seal deals worth billions of pounds for defence firms. It's thought the trip could secure the sale of dozens of Eurofighter Typhoon jets and other equipment. Critics have accused the Prime Minister of ignoring the rules on arms deals, but Mr Cameron insists he can balance those sales with human rights concerns. I make absolutely no apologies for the fact that I am here talking to our friends in the Emirates, our friends in Saudi Arabia, about defence partnerships because their security is important for our security and this is vital for British jobs. There are over 300,000 people working in the defence industries in the UK and I want jobs and investment in Britain. 
Well, Dr. Patricia Lewis joins us now. She's Research Director for International Security at the Think Tank Chatham House. Uh, Dr. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Now, David Cameron says his trip's worth billions of pounds and it could secure thousands of jobs, and ultimately that's going to trump any human rights concerns, isn't it? Well, it shouldn't, and it probably won't. Uh, as you know, the UK is in the lead internationally uh, to put in place an arms trade treaty, which would prohibit the sale uh, of weapons for human rights abuses. So uh, David Cameron, being in, the, in his government being in the lead in that negotiation, is very mindful of the fact that he really does have to secure accountability on human rights use um, when it comes to any sales of weapons in the future. Well, Downing Street also said, uh, both before and after the Prime Minister travelled to the region, that there are very strict rules on the sale of defence equipment in the region. Ultimately, though, you, you can't sell another country a plane, a bomb, a gun, and then order them not to fire it at certain people. No, you can't. But you can, um, you can make the sale contingent on regular reporting and regular dialogue and discussion. There's also several other issues with Saudi Arabia too, um, and and the Gulf in general. And that's the issue of terrorism, counterterrorism, and and stability. Um, it's the issue of Iran, um, also the issue of all uh, other allies in the region and how all of those are balanced. So it's a bigger equation than just jobs at home. Uh, now, Christopher, the, the, the Saudis uh, three years ago used tornadoes supplied by the UK in attacks in Yemen. Um, it's thought that hundreds of civilians were killed in those attacks. So you can understand, in a way, why human rights groups are not sure they can trust any new guarantees. I think human rights groups, quite rightly, uh, will look at any arms deal. You've only got to go through, for example, the Swedish Cypri handbook every year and you could put end-user certificates on each sort of deal and say, are you sure that that will be used properly or it won't go to a third party? I think the important part of the whole Gulf thing is the United Kingdom has this sort of uh, uh, long-term defence instinct as well as uh, arrangements with for especially the Saudi Arabia, which you would expect when you consider the history of, of those arrangements and the fact that something like 20% of oil comes through the Gulf. Everybody has an instinct as well as an economic and a practical strategic uh, uh, issue here. And it can range from anything that what's going on in Iran. Uh, I mean, for example, there's a, a thing called a tanker bang at the moment in, in, in defence thinking. Tanker bang means that the Iranians could... Uh, for example, uh, explode an oil tanker and flood uh, part of the Gulf with oil and all that disrupts, etc., which is one of the reasons the Royal Navy is keeping MCMVs in the area. It is that sort of complex. It's not just one issue. Is it right that you can use weapons that you've sold to another country for the wrong reasons? Who decides the wrong reasons? And if, if for example, the Saudis were going into Yemen, who are we, were, were we going to attack in Yemen ourselves? Or not necessarily directly ourselves, but Al-Qaeda, which we believe in, in, in Yemen anyway. Uh, Patricia Lewis, a human rights watcher said that the UAE's action against activists has worsened significantly in the last few months. Is this necessarily the best time for the UK to be talking about a defence and industrial partnership there? It's a very difficult time, isn't it? I mean, you've had uh, the Arab awakening, uh, you've had a huge amount of change in the region, uh, there's all the issues of Bahrain, uh, there's also the issues of Iran. I mean, it's a very unstable time um, and I think one of the most important things that when you're looking at arms sales and when you're looking at uh, relationships is the issue of engagement and holding uh, countries with whom you're doing business to account and having a continuing dialogue. I was just looking at the voting record in the UN um, 
yesterday on uh, the arms trade treaty. You know, the UK is pushing on this and you had the United States voting in favour, for example, but Saudi Arabia abstained. Uh, so I think that there's, you know, there some concerns being raised there. And if we can engage and talk about these issues with um, some of the Gulf countries and get a different types, type of uh, relationship over human rights issues, it would increase stability in the region for everybody. And, and in, in a word, is it more productive for us to be there and, and also keeping those deals going if we want to achieve those improved human rights outcomes? It's, that's a very difficult question to answer. And, and I think we should also put in the context that last year, uh, the US arms sales to Saudi Arabia were over $33 billion. And this is, you know, a much, much smaller amount. Um, so the, the overwhelming amount of, of deals being done with Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf countries are being done with the United States. So again, engaging the United States, engaging Russia, uh, engaging some of the other regional players, and um, particularly, I think we should engage other Arab states that are more democratic now and how we develop stability and security in the, in, uh, the whole region. OK, Patricia Lewis from Chatham House, thank you very much for your time today. Now, very briefly, Christopher, it's not that long ago we were talking about the 50th anniversary of the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Fifty years on, um, is there still a threat to America from, from one of its closest neighbours? I'll tell you a story. I was talking to a chum of mine, Ray-Ban, who lives in... Havana, I used to know when I was there. And he said, it's great. He said, since the, uh, he said, we haven't had such a good time since you and I went to the Buena Vista Social Club gig in Carnegie Hall. He said, it's marvellous. The two fellows that we were with then were both in CIA. CIA, he said, is now operating a new scam in Havana. They're trying to put round laptops to young students, medical students, young lawyers, etc. The idea being they go on the laptops, they see all the great things that are going on in the world, and they can start a new revolution. This is about 657 in, in the number of attempts the CIA has had to dis disrupt the whole, what they still see as the commie revolution in, in Havana. Do you know what my friend Raban is doing? He's sending some of his people in, and these are the law students, uh, they're getting, they're saying, thanks very much for the laptop. They're taking them around to Raban. They're $300 a time. He's flogging them for $60. He's making money out of the CIA. We're going to the next Buena Vista Social Club gig. It's a, it's a technological step forward from the exploding cigar. <laughs> thanks very much to Christopher Lee and to all our contributors today. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at BFBS Cibrep. Kate's back next week, but for now, from me, Paul Osborne. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.